This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Proxy Marriage by Miley Malloy, which was published in The New Yorker in May of 2012. Other soldiers heard about the proxy law, and William and Bridie did three more weddings on a single day in the spring, and three in the summer after they graduated. It got easier for William as the ceremony became familiar. His heart didn't trip over itself so much when he said, I do. The story was chosen by Anne Patchett, who's the author of eight novels, including Commonwealth and The Dutch House, which was a finalist for last year's Pulitzer Prize. Hi, Anne. Hi, Deborah. Welcome. Um, so you and Miley Malloy are friends. It's true. It's a fix. <laughs> <laughs> and... I've heard that you were, in a way, the trigger for this story, The Proxy Marriage. Can you tell me about that? Um, In a very small way. uh, Miley and I were in Australia together. We were on book tour separately. But when you fly to Australia with someone and you're there a couple of weeks and then fly back, you have a lot of time to talk. And at one point, Miley was telling me about Proxy Marriage. She is from Helena, Montana, and Montana is the only state where you can have a double proxy marriage, which means neither the bride nor the groom has to be present in order for the wedding to happen. And while she was telling me about that, I said, wow, that sounds like a short story. What do you think that Miley does best in her writing? What is its greatest characteristic? My gosh, um, I'm such a (laughs) fan I'm not even going to say this is the greatest characteristic of Miley's writing, but the greatest characteristic of Miley as a person is that anything she decides she wants to put her mind to, she can do. And she is always trying new things. She will research and study and practice and then be fantastic at it. When I met Miley, She wrote short stories. I really believe she is one of our absolute greatest living short story writers. And then she decided she wanted to write novels. And then she decided she wanted to write middle grade fiction and then picture books. And now she's working on a graphic novel and she's doing screenplays. And Mm -hmm. this also applies to things like laying tile, which she can also do. Oh, I needed a good tile layer. Um, (laughs) Call Miley Malloy. And what do you think it is about the proxy marriage that makes it so memorable? What's so extraordinary to me about this story is the way she moves time forward, the way the characters change from high school students to people in their late 20s, maybe their 30 by the time the story ends. And we get to watch them change and deepen just the way real people do as they grow up through extremely careful, subtle little moments. And yet the love is always steady. William's love for Bridie never changes. Well, I think we should listen to the story now so we know what you mean. So now here is Anne Patchett reading The Proxy Marriage by Miley Malloy. The Proxy Marriage William was tall and thin and shy and awkward in school. His best social tool was that he played the piano and so was recruited for school musicals, 
which placed him at rehearsals and cast parties with kids he would otherwise scarcely have known. He thought he would either be a pianist or a physicist, although he didn't know anyone in Montana who did those things professionally. His piano teacher was a banker's widow who gave lessons in her lace-curtained house, and his physics teacher was primarily the wrestling coach. But William could imagine another kind of life. Through the musicals, he became friends with Bridie Taylor. Bridie had golden curls like a Botticelli angel and a face that didn't go with them, a long, straight nose, dark eyes. She had a clear, bright, mezzo-soprano voice, and she wanted to be an actress. Her mother had left when Bridie was nine, and she had grown up with her father, a lawyer, who adored her. Bridie was confident, even a little vain, and she was good at school, except for math, which didn't interest her. William helped her through trigonometry, teaching her the concepts at lunch before tests so she could forget them immediately afterward. William had no girlfriends in high school, and his mother once sat him down at the table in her spotless kitchen and asked if he was gay. She said it would be fine with her. She loved him unconditionally, and they would figure out a way to tell his father. But William wasn't gay. He was just absurdly, painfully in love with Bridie Taylor, who leaned on the piano and sang while he played, and he had no way of telling her. He was too shy to pursue other girls, even when the payoff seemed either likely or worth the agony. But he didn't tell his mother that. It was too humiliating. He just stammered an unconvincing denial. Other boys asked Bridie out, and William suffered through it. She viewed them with amusement, but accepted most invitations. Encouraged, in their junior year, William decided to ask her to the winter formal. He was getting ready, vibrating with anticipation, when Bridie told him that a tennis-playing senior named Monty had invited her. What did you say? he asked. Oh, yes, I guess. William excused himself from homeroom and went to the disinfectant-smelling, tiled bathroom. He waited until he was sure that no one else was there, then threw up in a green graffiti-marked stall. He hadn't thrown up since he was six when he had the flu, and it was harrowing. His body seemed to have been taken over by some alien force. But Monty made a mistake. He sat Bridie down in his parents' living room two days after the dance and told her that he'd wanted three things out of high school. To be captain of the tennis team, to get into Berkeley, and to have a serious girlfriend. The first two had already happened, and Bridie would be perfect for the third. She reported the conversation to William, laughing. He was so earnest, she said, about his goals. William made a mental note never to be earnest with Bridie. In September of their senior year, the World Trade Center and the Pentagon were attacked 
and the towers fell. William's parents were out of town, and he overslept, waking when Bridie called him. Wake up, she said. Terrorists are attacking America. Where? he asked, groggy with sleep. Everywhere, she said. At school, teachers brought out television sets on AV carts, and they all watched the news, silent and dazed. In November, troops were sent to Afghanistan. In December, Bridie's father came to her and William with a request. He'd been asked to arrange a proxy wedding for a Marine corporal in Kandahar and his fiancée, who was in North Carolina and pregnant. They wanted to give the child his father's name and a death benefit if something went wrong. Most states didn't allow proxy marriages, and Montana was the only one that allowed double proxy weddings, in which neither party had to be present. The practice seemed to have been allowed before statehood and had been used for soldiers during the Second World War, but no one knew exactly why it had arisen, possibly because it was difficult to travel long distances to a courthouse to marry an out-of-state sweetheart. Mr. Taylor asked Bridie and William to be the proxies. He'd asked his secretary and his paralegal first, but they'd had no interest. William's mother thought it was a good idea and a way to do something for the country when everyone felt helpless, a small offering. William thought that she hadn't believed his claims of heterosexuality before and was happy with the idea of his marrying a girl. He wondered if Bridie's father thought he was gay, too, or just dickless and unthreatening. But William took the thing seriously. He couldn't help it. Even a fake marriage to Bridie Taylor filled his heart with unaccountable joy, and he went home after school and put on his dark gray recital suit and a tie. He and Brady were getting $50 each, and he thought he should dress for the job. At the county courthouse, he found Brady with her sneakered feet up on a heavy wooden table. Her hair was pulled back in a stubby, curly ponytail, and she wore the jeans and sweatshirt she'd put on for school. She glanced from William's face to his suit. You look nice, she said. There was annoyance in her voice. Thank you, he said, mortified. Bridie looked like an ordinary girl in a sullen mood, not like the love of anyone's life, and he felt a flicker of hope, not that she would ever come to love him, but that someday he might not be in thrall to her. He might be free. She was chewing gum. I think we should have champagne, she said to her father, who was in shirt sleeves. It's a wedding. You aren't old enough, her father said. He was a big man, bearish but kind, and he had scared William at first, though he didn't anymore. I'm old enough to get married, Bridie said. Not really, her father said. The marrying couple had sent photographs and Bridie dropped her feet to the floor and propped up the photos against two water bottles on the table. 
The bride had light brown hair and freckles on a wide, open, pale face, and the groom was in uniform. They aren't going to last, she said. I can tell. Bridey, her father said, looking over his glasses, this man could be killed any day. Show some respect. Spit that gum out. Bridie rolled her eyes, folded the gum into a scrap of paper, and tossed it into a wastebasket by the door. Her father's secretary, Pam, came in to serve as a witness. She had neat, short gray hair, and she was wearing a dress for which William was grateful. Mr. Taylor began reading from a piece of paper. We are gathered here today to join this couple who have applied for and received a marriage license from the state in holy matrimony. Do you, Bridie, take this man by proxy to be your lawfully wedded husband, to have and to hold by the laws of God and of this state? There was a silence, and then Bridie said, Oh, sorry, I do. Do you promise to love him and keep him? in sickness and in health, for richer and for poorer, as long as you both shall live. I do, Bridie said. William's heart thudded twice in quick succession. Her sleeves were pushed up to her elbows, and he found himself looking at her narrow wrists and the fine, downy hair on her arms. He was shot through with desire. So much for being free. Her father said, Do you, William, take this woman by proxy to be your lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold by the laws of God and of this state? I do. Do you promise to love her and keep her, in sickness and in health, for richer and for poorer, as long as you both shall live? William's voice caught. I do. Then I now pronounce Shelley Jean Jackson and Anthony Janes Thibodeau man and wife. Mr. Taylor put the paper down. That's it? Bridie asked. That's it, her father said, and you have to sign. William signed his name, his hand shaking only a little, and Bridie signed hers. Pam signed as the witness. Then Bridie's father produced a folded stack of cash and peeled off one $50 bill for Bridie and one for William. We're rich, Bridie said. Let's go get food. They sat over bowls of chili in the green booth downtown, William self-conscious in his suit. Why the bad mood? he asked. I told my mother I'm applying to conservatories, Bridie said to study musical theater. She said it was a cliched and superficial thing to do and that anyway, I'm not pretty enough. Almost, but not quite. She just wanted to be honest to save me the disappointment later. That was sweet of her, he said. I thought you weren't in touch. We aren't much, Bridie said. I used to see her once a year, but it confuses her now that I'm not a little girl anymore, so I don't go visit. I thought she'd lost all that scary maternal power, you know. Are you really wearing that dress? 
that kind of thing. But I guess she hasn't. Do you know why she left? William shook his head. Bridie never talked about it, and he'd only heard rumors. She met a psychic channeler who put her in touch with her past lives. She was always into past lives. That's why she named me Bridie. Some woman got hypnotized a long time ago, and she said she used to be an Irish girl named Bridie Murphy who died, and she had all these details, and there was a book, but reporters checked and the dead girl never existed. Except my mother still believes it's possible. She moved to Oakland to be near her psychic. One of her other past lives was as a pioneer woman, digging potatoes with her hands. One was as a French courtesan before the Revolution. My mom thinks that's why her French is so good. I used to want her to be interested in this life, you know? She has indoor plumbing in this life, and a daughter, but she likes the other lives better. Bridie rubbed her nose. I just wish I didn't care. Of course you care, William said. She's your mom. Hardly. She still is. Elbow on the table, Bridie rested her temple in her palm, fingers in her curls. Do you think that couple will stay married, she asked, the ones today? I hope so. Do you believe in true love and all that? William cleared his throat. I think so. Bridie buried her spoon in the chili and let it fall with a clink to the bowl's white rim. I don't know, though. What are the chances that you'll meet that one person? Better than the chances of contacting a dead pioneer woman. She smiled, but her eyes grew shiny with tears. I guess. She gave you a good name for your new job, he said. Proxy Bridie? Bridie laughed and wiped at her eyes. So I should give her more credit? No, William said. You give her too much. Bridie's father asked them to do another proxy wedding that winter. When they met at the courthouse, Bridie brought her acceptance letter from a conservatory in Chicago and showed it to William. She was in a spectacular mood, hugging her father when he arrived, flirting with William during the ceremony. But William knew better than to think she was actually flirting with him. It was just her happiness spilling over. Other soldiers heard about the proxy law and William and Bridie did three more weddings on a single day in the spring, and three in the summer after they graduated. It got easier for William as the ceremony became familiar. His heart didn't trip over itself so much when he said, I do. Then he went to Oberlin to study piano, and Bridie went to Chicago. College was busy, and they were only sporadically in touch, but at Christmas, they met in the courthouse for another wedding. Bridie's father wasn't there yet, and William and Bridie sat at the heavy wooden table. She was thinner, and it shocked him. She had never been fat, but she had always been a little rounded. Now the roundness was gone. It's exhausting, she said. The girls there are really dancers. I'm killing myself to catch up, and they're... I don't know, 
ruthless. They come from places with serious theater programs where you have to be better than 300 girls to get a part. Here, I just had to be better than three other girls. So they've become these thin, flexible blades of ambition, and I'm, I don't know, this goofy girl who wants to sing and dance. That might be a good thing, William said. At college, he played piano for ballet classes for extra money, and he knew what she was talking about, the hardness of the dancers. You might seem fresh and better. I don't think so, Bridie said. Do you have friends? I do, but they... You know how here the bad kids drink beer from kegs and get in fistfights and go sledding drunk? William smiled. It was one of the things he'd been happiest to get away from. There, Bridie said, they do ecstasy and strip to that Leonard Cohen song, Everybody Knows, or to any song, really, and then fall into bed with whoever's there. It's like they have these fabulous bodies and don't want to waste them. There were so many people you just had to meet without your clothes. That's the line they like. Do you? William's voice caught with the imagining of it. Strip? God, no, she said and laughed her old laugh, her angel's curls bouncing around the face he loved. I'm such a prude. I stay sober and keep my clothes on, but I'm always terrified. They went through the familiar ceremony, but Bridie wasn't familiar to him. There was something vulnerable and uncertain in her eyes now, and it pierced his heart. Two days later, she came to his parents' Christmas party in a tight red dress. She did a good impression of having her old confidence standing by the tree, laughing, a glass of champagne in her hand, her hair golden in the Christmas lights. William's father raised his eyebrows at him with approval and with what seemed to be a question. William only shook his head. What could he say to Bridie that wouldn't sound too earnest and frighten her away and ruin everything? He thought of poor rejected Monty, who had seen the thing that William's father saw now. Monty had tried to grab it clumsily with flat-footed talk of goals, and Bridie had laughed and slipped out of his grasp. In January, William went back to school and threw himself into practice, into work. He started writing music tentatively. He stopped playing for ballet classes and wrote a piano quintet. It was difficult and reminded him of his old love of physics, of working out complicated problems and trying to keep multiple ideas in his head at the same time. The night he saw it performed by other students, he decided that he would switch from performance to composition. The Iraq invasion brought more soldiers who wanted to marry. Bridie's father was depressed by the war, but he kept performing weddings. He said it wasn't the soldiers' fault that the war was wrong. But the following spring, when the Abu Ghraib photographs emerged, Mr. Taylor shut down his proxy business. We're done, he said. 
I'm done. William thought there must be a long compound German word for the way that large events in the world could affect your personal life. The scale was reduced to the point of insignificance, but the everyday effect was amplified. No more proxy marriages meant very little contact with Bridie now that they were at different schools. She wasn't so concerned about what day exactly he'd be getting home on break. He worked all the time, and his back ached from hours at the piano, so he went to the gym to strengthen it, and his body changed. His chest deepened, his arms grew stronger. He even got a girlfriend, finally, a dark-haired oboist named Jillian, who explained to him what woodwinds could and couldn't do after he showed her a piece he'd written that would have required bionic lungs. Jillian knew that when she finished school and started looking for a job in a symphony, there might be no positions for an oboe. Or, if she was lucky, there might be just one, and many people would want it. She had not spent hundreds of hours hunched over a table making reeds for nothing. She knew how old all the principal oboists were, whether they were married to someone whose work might take them to another city, and whether they were happily married. She was determined to get whatever spot came up, and she had ambition to spare for William. Neither his parents nor his old piano teacher had ever had exactly that. They wanted him to be happy, but Jillian wanted him to be prominent. There might be an opening in Tampa, she said, lying in his dorm bed. Would you come to Tampa? You could work as well there as anywhere. Looking at her beside him, her fine dark hair fanned out on his pillow, mascara smeared touchingly under one eye, he realized that he wouldn't go to Tampa if an oboist dropped dead and Jillian got the job. He wondered if this was how other people plumbed the secrets of their own hearts with tests like, Will you go to Tampa? I'm going to graduate school, he said. Jillian's brow furrowed. Where? she asked. He could see her running through the oboe list in her head, life expectancies, marital chances. I don't know yet, he said. I'm tired of Ohio. I haven't gotten much further than that. It was true. It didn't matter where he went. He was grateful to Jillian for her cold ambition and her warm company and for the abundant sex, but it wasn't fair to let her think that he'd go to Tampa, and it wasn't her fault that she wasn't Bridie Taylor. Proxy applicants began to write beseeching letters to Bridie's father, and finally he relented. At Christmas, William and Bridie did five weddings in a row, after they graduated, they had a docket of seven. Pam, the secretary, said that the first couple had written their own vows and asked if the proxies could say them. She gave them each a typed sheet of paper. It's okay with me if it's okay with you, Bridie's father said. Bridie picked up her script and turned toward William. I will run through the rain for you, she read stifling a laugh and taking refuge in the page. 
I will worship your feet, even your crooked baby toe with no toenail. I promise to devote myself to your happiness, even when the things you do don't always make me happy. And I will remember that no proxy in the world could stand in for you. Not truly, because you are irreplaceable to me. You are the man I was meant to spend my life with, and I hereby put my heart in your hands. She put down the script. Oh, she said, startled. That's really... I'm sorry I laughed. William caught the secretary who had known Bridie since she was a child, watching them across the room. He avoided her eye. In July, Bridie moved to New York to audition. William told himself that he could go to New York, too. But Bridie wasn't asking, and graduate schools were, and Indiana University offered the most money. "'You're tired of Ohio, so you're going to Indiana?' Jillian asked him on the phone. "'What the hell is the difference?' She still hadn't forgiven him for breaking up with her, which was flattering. He hoped that she would get a job without something too terrible happening to another oboist. No lymphoma, no shattering divorce. But he knew that Jillian would be happy either way. William liked Bloomington, with its lush, towering trees and fireflies at dusk and its austere gray university buildings. He settled into work and got a tutoring job helping brilliant Korean violinists with shaky English write their music theory papers. One morning, he picked up a newspaper in a cafe while waiting for coffee and saw the name of a sergeant he and Bridie had married. He had been killed by a roadside bomb. William was sure it was the same name. After that... He avoided newspapers. In school, this was easy to do. Bridie called him sometimes from New York, more often than she had from school. She was working nights at a restaurant in the village, then going home to Brooklyn and waking up in the dark to put on full makeup and stand in line for early morning chorus calls back in Manhattan. She wasn't getting the parts, and she was demoralized. He didn't tell her about the sergeant. The last casting director told me I wasn't an ingenue, she said. She said, I have an ingenue's hair, but there are always wigs for that, and I don't have the right face. She said, I'm really a character actress, but I'm not old enough for the roles yet. I'm not old enough for my face. So what am I supposed to do? Wait 30 years to have a career? Something will come up, William said. They'll want someone with your look. I don't know, Bridie said. I'm not a real dancer. Thank God. And I'm just so tired. You need to sleep, he said, or you'll look old enough for the character parts really soon. Bridie laughed, and then it turned into something like a sob. Maybe my mother was right, she said. I'm just not pretty enough. Bridie, he said, you've been there eight months. But they had the same conversation after two years, then three. Sometimes there were happy calls about jobs, 
a cat food ad that paid bills, a touring company that never made it to Indiana. But rejection was wearing her down. Sometimes he went weeks without thinking of Bridie, and sometimes she haunted him. Then came a year when there were no calls, no emails, no word. The first news he had was a call from his mother, who had run into Bridie's grandmother at the grocery store. The proud old lady had said, I don't know what Bridie's doing trying to be an actress, but you know she just married a lovely young man. Well, maybe not so young, but I'm told he's lovely. William felt as if he had been punched in the stomach. He couldn't find the breath to talk normally to his mother, and she seemed to understand. I'm sorry, William, she said. Thank you for telling me, he managed to say. He waited for Bridie to call, but she didn't. Finally, he texted her. What's new? She didn't respond. He was working on a commission, but the notes swam together every time he looked at it. He sat at the keyboard in his apartment, but his head spun with thoughts of what he should have done differently. He'd known Bridie had boyfriends, but somehow he never thought that she would marry someone else. She married him, William, every time they were home. He wondered if that had made it easier to do it for real, if marrying so many times without personal consequences had made her wander blindly into the wrong marriage, because it was the wrong marriage. He was sure. How could it be anything else? Finally, he started working again. Without Bridie to hope for, he felt that he was living in a timeless universe. It was a peculiarly freeing state, he didn't worry about whether the music he was writing was good or bad. Sometimes he seemed only to be channeling it. He thought about Bridie's mother's psychic calling up past lives and wondered if the music was coming from somewhere else. Sometimes he knew that he was actively composing, thinking about what a bassoon could do, how long a note could be sustained, how long dissonance could be tolerated before it had to resolve into something sweet. But even then he felt cut loose from his critical sense. He was making something, and it gave him pleasure, and it didn't matter if it ever left his apartment, or if he ever left his apartment. As long as he never went out, there was no crashing self-consciousness, no awareness of the outside world. But time did pass, and Christmas came. He told his parents that he couldn't afford to come home and stayed in Indiana. What he couldn't do was go through another marriage to Bridie, who was already married, or, worse, stand by while her new husband took over as the proxy. In January, his mother reported that Bridie hadn't come for Christmas either, and in February, she called to say that Bridie was getting divorced and was moving home. Listening to the silence on the line, William thought that maybe this was a dream or a fantasy on his part, just 
wish fulfillment. I think you should call her, his mother finally said. And say what? She doesn't know you're in love with her. I'm not. Oh, William, I'm your mother, she said. I think I know you a little bit. I can't call her. Sometimes I think you two are determined to be unhappy. She's not unhappy, he said. That's not what I hear. Then stop listening. There was another silence. Come home this summer, his mother said. I'll buy you a ticket. William tried to recover the blissful, anesthetizing working state he had been in, but it was harder now. He was distracted. The spell had been broken. The small-town smoke signals relayed to Indiana kept him informed about Bridie. She was working in her father's office, filing and waiting tables in a downtown restaurant. He wondered if Bridie got news about him, too. Did the smoke signals work without a mother to receive them? In June, he went home and got his answer. He had been in his parents' house only a day when his phone rang. Bridie's name was on the screen. He picked up, and something deep in his belly thrilled against his will to the sound of her voice. My dad wants to know if you'll do another wedding, she said. Just one. He said nothing. William? Who's been doing it since we've been gone? He asked. No one. He hasn't been doing them. I heard you got actually married. I did. He could hear her trying to keep her tone light. Turns out I'm not so good at the real thing. Who was he? He owned the restaurant where I worked, she said. Do you remember the jungle book when the python hypnotizes Mowgli and his eyes twirl and he'll follow the snake anywhere and let himself be strangled? That was me. I was Mowgli. But I slipped the coils. Why? Oh, she said wearily. He was sleeping with two of the other waitresses. Is that enough? Look, I can tell my dad you can't do it. I'll do it he said. When William parked his mother's car in the courthouse lot, there was a woman beside him in a red pickup truck, crying. The air was brisk and the tall, old stone building imposing, with the new prison built alongside it. Inside the courthouse, the room they usually used was locked, so William backtracked to the clerk's office. The girl in front of him in line, who looked about 17, was picking up a restraining order. A bosomy clerk at a desk held a phone receiver to her shoulder and asked, How do we do a dissolution of a marriage if the husband is in Afghanistan? He wondered reflexively if the dissolving marriage was one of his and Bridie's. Other people's pain. The courthouse was full of it. A clerk let him into the locked room, and William dropped his backpack on the heavy wooden table, folding his long body into a chair. He was early. He tented his hands in front of his face as if they could shield him from seeing Bridie. If equal affection cannot be, let the more loving one be me. That was Auden. William had set the poem to music for a pretentious tenor at school. 
But what did Auden know, padding around in filthy carpet slippers, filling teacups with cigarette butts? Auden, by his nature, was always going to be the more loving one, so he'd tried to make the longing admirable and desirable. William knew from experience that it wasn't. The role of the human brain was to rationalize suffering. Friday came into the room. She wore jeans and a button-down shirt, one corner tucked in. It had been two years since he'd seen her, and the hard angles of her face surprised him. She looked tired and beaten down with dark circles under her eyes. But she had the same ringlets bouncing around her ears, the same sweetly discordant face. William's tented hands couldn't protect him. His heart ached at the sight of her. She sat and hugged one knee, a sneakered foot on the chair. How's the composing? she asked. It's all right. He was suddenly sure that he shouldn't have come. Seeing her, hearing her voice, was opening wounds he had sewn tightly shut with great effort and resolve. How is it being home? She smiled. It's a little bit awful, she said. There are certain women who are thrilled to see me waiting tables. They order a salad and say, Well, you went off to be a big star, and now you're back here. Hmm? It confirms all their beliefs about the futility of leaving. So, you know, I'm making people happy. That's important. Her father walked in and clapped William on the shoulder. Good to see you home, he said. The couple wants a video conference. I said you wouldn't mind. Video, Bridie said, touching her hair. You could have warned us. They just told me, her father said. He pulled a laptop from his bag and gave it to Bridie, along with a post-it with two usernames scribbled on it. They want to Skype, whatever that is. I'd have washed my hair if I'd known, Bridie said. Do they want to see you or just us? Just you two, her father said. I'll be right back. William pulled his chair beside Bridie's while she set up a Skype account for her father. Their faces appeared on the laptop screen. Bridie scooted her chair closer, and William felt her knee brush his. He looked down at the keyboard. He didn't want to see his own face, and he didn't trust himself to look at Bridie's. She fluffed her curls. Are you okay with this? I should have asked. It's fine, he said, hating the harshness in his voice. But after today, you have to find someone else. Bridie looked at him, startled. Really? It's too hard for me. I can't do this anymore. Why not? Just call them, he said. Let's get it over with. So Bridie did. William waited, agitated and awkward. He still felt like a gangly kid, because that was how Bridie had always known him. He shouldn't have told her he was quitting until they'd finished. He didn't want to see the couple they were marrying and be reminded of how little the ceremony had to do with him and Bridie. But then the bride and groom were there a young black couple in separate windows at the top of the screen. 
the bride had wide eyes and a smooth bob. Behind her was a living room in Virginia. The groom was in Iraq and wore digital desert camouflage. Their names were Natalie and Darren. Hi, Bridie said. I'm Bridie, and this is William. We're your proxies. The bride frowned. I asked for black proxies, but the lawyer said you're in Montana. I guess it's pretty white there. It is, Bridie said, apologetic. I'm his daughter. The lawyer's daughter, we always do the weddings. Okay, Natalie said. Darren asked, what's your success rate? Well, everyone gets married, Bridie said. You mean, do they stay married? Yeah. I don't know, Bridie said. William remembered the dead sergeant's name in the paper and the question about the disillusion of marriage, and he pushed both thoughts away. I wish this was the proper thing, Darren said, like if I was home. It's legal, Bridie said. You'll be married. See, baby, Natalie said to her fiancé. It's all right. It just feels wrong, he said. I'm sorry, Bridie said. Thank you for your service. The soldier nodded. William resisted the urge to look at Bridie in surprise. Thank you for your service? Where had she learned to say that? Mr. Taylor came back to the room with Pam, who wore a flowered dress, and they sat down. Ready? he asked. William and Bridie nodded, and her father started the familiar ceremony. Do you, Bridie, take this man by proxy to be your lawfully wedded husband, to have and to hold by the laws of God and of this state? I do, Bridie said. On the screen, Natalie started to cry. William answered in turn, and he saw Darren mouth the words silently along with him, looking fiercely intent. Bridie's father pronounced them man and wife, and Natalie put her hands over her mouth and tried to control her tears. As he signed his name and the date, William hoped the couple would be happy together. He hoped Darren would make it home. Bridie's father and Pam came around the table to wave at the camera and offer congratulations, and then left with the paperwork. William and Bridie were alone with the couple on the screen. You're married now, Bridie said. I wish I could say you may now kiss the bride. Natalie was rescuing her eye makeup from her tears. What, you don't provide that service? No, William said firmly. Oh, come on, Natalie said. To seal it, I'm a superstitious girl. You're lucky I don't ask you to jump over a broom. William turned in confusion toward Bridie. We could jump he began. But then it just seemed to happen, as if by magnetic force, as if human lips couldn't be in such proximity and not meet. William's eyes closed. He was kissing Bridie Taylor. It was too much to take in. Her lips were soft and warm, and she smelled of something sweet and vaguely spicy. Ginger, maybe. 
in her hair. Then the kiss was over, and Bridie looked up at him with an expression of puzzlement. She was blushing. He could see a pink tinge rise in her cheeks. His ears burned painfully, and he knew they were turning bright red. There was a whoop and the sound of clapping, and William turned to see Natalie applauding them. Darren was grinning for the first time. Bridie gave a little bow to the camera. Her father walked in, and they both stood up instinctively, like schoolchildren caught in some mischief. Their bench made a screeching noise as it slid back across the wooden floor. They said goodbye to the couple, and there were thanks and good wishes, and Bridie started to put away the computer. Mr. Taylor frowned at William. Is something wrong with your ears? William clapped his hands over them. They just get hot sometimes. Mr. Taylor looked suspicious, but he put his computer into his bag and left. Your ears really are red, Bridie said when they were alone. It happens. I remember, she said. You do? She nodded and raised her hands to his ears, cool fingertips on the hot rims of cartilage. Please don't do this, Bridie, he said. Don't toy with me. I'm not. You are. Did you feel it before? She asked. When we... When they asked us to kiss? Feel what? Something shifted. All of a sudden, she said, like it came into focus. Not for me. His voice was hoarse. No? She looked disappointed. He shook his head. It was always there for me. His legs were trembling. She frowned doubtfully, and he thought of his mother saying, She doesn't know you're in love with her, and of his anger that Bridie could possibly be so dense. It's true he said. Her eyes went through a whole sequence of emotions, surprise, then compassion, then sadness, and then something that looked like joy. Her face flushed pink again, and she looked like the bridey tailor he had fallen in love with. How could you marry someone else? he asked. I told you, she said, I was hypnotized by a snake. That's no excuse. I don't know then, she said. I just, I didn't know. But now you do. I do. Are you sure? In answer, she drew him close to kiss the bride. William buried his hands in her curls at the base of her neck and felt her long-desired body press against him, her soft mouth against his, the gingery smell. He thought he might weep with the relief of it, with the release of all the years of waiting, the intermittent periods of suppressed grief. Equal affection. Was this it? It didn't have to be exactly equal. He would take anything close. 
That was Anne Patchett reading The Proxy Marriage by Miley Malloy. The story appeared in The New Yorker in May of 2012. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Anne, one of the first things we learn about William in that first paragraph is that he can imagine a different kind of life. And imagination plays a huge role in the story for him. Do you see it as his blessing or his curse? Oh, absolutely his blessing. Imagination, I think, is always a blessing. He has a wider view of the world and of his possibilities. And when you grow up in a small town, that really sets you apart. And it doesn't scare William. It's just a fact for him. He knows other things are possible. Do you think Bridie has the same kind of imagination? Yeah, I do. I think Bridie definitely sees a larger life for herself. But right from the beginning, she has strikes against her, mainly her mother, who is present just enough to undermine her self-confidence, whereas William's parents seem very consistent in their encouragement And I also think that it's really important to remember when you want to do something as large and strange as make a living in the arts, in Bridie's case, she wants to be an actress and a singer and a dancer. In William's case, he wants to be a pianist and a composer. You can be really good at those things and not make it. And that's another thing that I love about this story. William makes it, we assume, and Bridie doesn't. You know, she works hard and she tries but she doesn't make it. And that's a very real outcome of wanting to have a life in the arts. Yeah, sort of tragic outcome in a way. What I see in this relationship is Bridie has all the ambition. William is grateful when someone else has ambition for him. You know, when Jillian has ambition for him, he doesn't quite have the drive that Bridie has. Well, I mean, William has something regular and plodding. I also think that there is a very different kind of ambition that's necessary for performance as opposed to composition. I mean, William can stay home, whereas Bridie has to work late, get up before dawn, put on a full face of makeup, and stand in line and look bright and happy. And to me, that's just (laughs) soul-crushing. It does somewhat crush her. The idea of her performing and William not performing is interesting because he makes a conscious switch. He starts as a performer yes, and then moves to composing. In a way, I see that switch as him taking control, not relying on an audience, not relying on being discovered. 
And also I see it as one more mark of him growing up because this is a story in which the characters just keep bringing themselves more and more into focus. And so it makes perfect sense if you're a kid in high school in Montana and you can play the piano and you're good and that's how you get attention, you're going to think, I'm going to play the piano for a living. But then when you go out into the world, he goes to Oberlin and he thinks, no, I'm better at composition than performing. It's interesting, too, because when Miley was young, she did some acting. It makes sense to me that she would have turned away from that and basically gone in the house and closed the door and thought, okay, I want to come up with the stories and not perform the stories. Yeah. Well, I want to go back to the first proxy wedding in the story Mm -hmm. where William walks in and Bridie is all sullen and in her sneakers and jeans and he's put on a suit and he has this intense flash of hope and his hope is not that she's going to fall in love with him but that he's going to fall out of love with her yes and and be free of her why is that his hope (laughs) and not the other way around it's such a wonderful telling moment he believes completely that someone as fabulous as Bridie will never notice him, never love him, but that maybe someday he won't always have to love her. And he's wrong. He's wrong because he does. (laughs) It's the one through line in all of it. Yeah. Bridie gives him so little. She doesn't talk to him for years. She doesn't tell him when she gets married. She holds him at arm's length without even seeming to think about it. What is it that keeps him in love with her all those years? Well, her essential bridiness. Um, <laughs> it's very. It's a very interesting question because I never doubt it. I don't look at the two of them and think, why? Why does he love her? She is so bright and shiny, center of attention. She's everything he's not. And they're both from this same little town where nobody else got out. There would have been no one else in this little high school like Bridie. She's so special. And the interesting thing is that as he goes out in the world and meets other people and plays the piano for ballet classes and dates Jillian the oboist and and all of that, the first influence of knowing someone who was sparkly and brave and outspoken and like him, willing to try, willing to leave, that would be an enormous bond, I think, for him. And Jillian is also someone who's trying, who has a lot of ambition, who has a talent, and who actually really loves him. You think? You know, well, reciprocates the feeling, you know, she's warm towards him. She thinks about his future. She wants to be together. And yet he can't go there with someone else. Yeah. I mean, there's a way in which I put Jillian in Monty's camp. Monty being the boy who asked Bridie to the winter formal when they were in high school. And he has three he has goals. goals. Right. <laughs> and and he's going to be the captain of the tennis team, go to Berkeley and have a serious girlfriend. And that seems more like Jillian to me. You know, she's going to be an oboist. She's going to get a spot in the symphony and she's going to have a serious boyfriend. I mean, I'm not putting her down. She's a likable character. 
but I feel almost like she's all about checking the boxes. I mean, she never says, hey, well, if you don't want to go to Tampa with me, I'll go to graduate school with you. I hadn't thought about it that way. <laughs> I, I can be a little hard on Jillian. <laughs> <laughs> the critical backdrop to this story is 9-11 and mm-hmm. the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Do you feel that that provides context on a deeper level, or is it is it just there to justify the need for so many proxy marriages? No, I think it definitely gives a deeper level of context to the story, especially where Bridey is concerned, because she goes from being so snarky and full of herself and chewing gum and her feet up on the table and saying, oh, they're never going to last all the way to the last marriage that they do on Skype. I also love that even the technology is changing in this story. And she's very comforting to them. She's apologetic. And she's like, we're going to do the best we can do. And she says, thank you for your service. And that's a long way from the girl with the gum at the first wedding. And so I think that that is not only about her just getting older, but it's also about a country at war for so long. And she begins to see the soldiers and what they're sacrificing and how terrifying their circumstances are. And the direct connection she has to the war finally works its way into her consciousness. There's a line, actually, in the story that sort of addresses that, is that William thought there must be a long compound German word for the way that large events in the world could affect your personal life. The scale was reduced to the point of insignificance, but the everyday effect was amplified. What do you think is amplified here? What's amplified is his love for her, I think. Uh, Bridie's father, Mr. Taylor, says, you know, I'm I'm not for this war, but it's not the fault of these soldiers. I mean, we have to keep serving them. This is the one way we can help. And then after Abu Ghraib, he pulls back and says, no, I don't want to have anything to do with this. And then he comes around again. There is a whole trickle down. And for William, Abu Ghraib means that Mr. Taylor is not going to participate in proxy marriages anymore, then he doesn't have that regular access to Bridie anymore. And it's a very interesting way of thinking how war comes down into our lives in all these tiny ways. And that, of course, the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan, it doesn't impact our lives in ways that it should impact our lives. And my mother talking about when I was a little girl, we had a victory garden and we collected the rubber and we had our ration coupons. That's how they felt that they could participate. And so Mm -hmm. the proxy marriage becomes how they can serve and help, but also how the war ultimately affects their lives. I think that, you know, these many years of saying I do to each other would harden them to the idea of marriage or make them blasé about it. And in fact, the opposite seems to happen. Why is that? Because they grow up. Because they understand more and more the weight of the words and the sacredness. I mean, Bridie is getting shifted without self-awareness, and William is being steadfast and true 
and it doesn't hurt him as much over time to say, I do. But it does deepen his love. I feel as though there's a, a countercurrent in the story, which is somewhat pessimistic about marriage. I mean, the main thrust of the story is quite optimistic, but you know, we have the one soldier who's killed by an IED, and we have someone in the courthouse who's trying to dissolve their marriage to a, a soldier in Afghanistan. Those original proxy marriages coming full circle and maybe ending in death or divorce, as Bridie's first marriage did. So do you think that the story as a whole is pessimistic or optimistic about marriage? I think it's true, you know, <laughs> which is neither and both. I certainly don't think it's pessimistic about marriage. I think it's optimistic about love. But, you know, it's never one way, nor, nor should it be, nor should it be recorded in a story as being one way. It's both. It's both things. Bridie's parents got divorced. William's parents stayed married. And one of the things that I love in this story is the economy with which Bridie gets married and divorced. Just like, oh, well, all right. <laughs> she marries this guy, and almost the next news he has of her, she's divorced him. And that happens. Yeah. It makes me wonder a little bit if the ending is a happy ending. Oh, come on, Deborah. <laughs> come on. If the relationship can work after all of these years of imbalance, of one person longing for it and the other person not even considering it. Don't bring me down. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm buying this 100%. <laughs> It's that slightly sad tinge to the last couple of lines where William says it doesn't have to be equal. He'll take anything that's close. feels a little sad for him. Oh, if you want something all your life and you've got nothing, it feels kind of realistic to me. But he's thrilled. He got what he yeah. wanted. I'm so happy for him. <laughs> okay. And And... I'm happy for her, too, because, you know, she's not going to be an actress. It didn't work out. But she's going to have a happy life because she's going to be with somebody who really, really loves her. I'm completely convinced they're going to be fine. She got what she didn't know she wanted. And then she knows. And when she knows, you know, everything suddenly clicks into place for her. And I know that when Miley was writing this story... She didn't know that it was going to have a happy ending. It was not the place that she had been going all along. And mm -hmm. it came out that way. And I dare say she believes in their love. There's the fact that Bridie is named Bridie, which, which William points out is, you know, entirely appropriate proxy Bridie. <laughs> mm -hmm. Do you think that's too obvious or do you think it's somehow... <laughs> A sign of great prescience on Bridie's mother's part. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of like a double negative in a way. You know, when you just do something that's so insanely obvious that you name the character who will get married nonstop Bridie, it's so great that she can get away with it. <laughs> and um, in the hands of a lesser writer, it would have seemed ridiculous. But you have William there to say, this is ridiculous. You're bridey. <laughs> um, you were talking earlier about how Miley moves us 
through time. What's her trick here? How does she get to jump years without us minding? It's very subtle. There are just so many tiny moments of it. William's back is sore because he's spending too much time at the piano and he starts to go to the gym and all of a sudden he develops a chest and Bridie becomes very angular and sharp. She loses her roundness. There are just tiny ways in which she shows us how they are moving forward and how they're not moving forward. And a lot of it is physical, which I love, how they sit, how they bump up against each other, how they're dressed, William in a suit, William not in a suit, Bridie still in her jeans, still herself. There's 9-11, the war's begun, then there's Abu Ghraib, then more soldiers want to get married, then Skype comes into it. The world evolves and changes and grows, and they evolve and change and grow. Yeah, that kind of movement, it seems easy when you read it, and I see quite how hard it would be to pick and choose your details, to pick and choose what's going to control the trajectory and the speed. Because this could be a novel. I could easily see it as a novel. Absolutely. And it's interesting, too, because Miley has written a screenplay for this, and they are hard at work on getting the film together. And I've read many drafts of the screenplay and seen the story flesh out and get bigger. Yet the parameters are exactly the same, and the action is the same. There are a few more people. There are a few more weddings. But the story in itself really is so much, and it moves so beautifully. Well, thank you so much, Anne. Thank you, Deborah. This was a lot of fun. Miley Malloy is the author of eight books of fiction, including the novel Do Not Become Alarmed, the story collection Both Ways is the Only Way I Want It, and The Apothecary, a trilogy for young readers. She's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 2000. Anne Patchett has published eight novels, including Bel Canto, which won the Penn Faulkner Award and the Orange Prize for Fiction, and The Dutch House, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. A new collection of essays, These Precious Days, will come out in November. You can download 170 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.